4.1. As we get ready to read this, if you missed the sermon on Christ, slavery, and love a couple weeks ago, and you've never heard this before, um, go back and listen to that because I'm not going to recap. <laughs> uh, but I am happy to continue the conversation on, on how we start to process these passages and the Bible's teaching on, on slavery and our modern anger struggles with justice and righteousness. Uh, there's much that can be said, and a lot of it has already been said a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, today what I want to do is look at the other application in this passage. Uh, we may not live in what we identify as servant-master relationships, but Paul clearly believes that the gospel changes our work in the world, and as soon as you start thinking in terms of employee and employer, uh, that kind of relationship, this has a lot of wisdom for us on, on how we live our everyday life and our chosen career and the, the, just the place where God has placed you. And so I want to meditate on that with you. Uh, later, we're going to read some of Genesis as well to get some of the background. But uh, let's start by reading from Colossians chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll begin. This is the word of our God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And this is the word of our God. It is true and trustworthy and communicated to us for our good. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father God, I pray this morning that uh, you would show us Jesus, that your spirit would come and do the work that, that you sent him to do, which is uh, convict us of our sin, convict us of our, well, the reality that we deserve judgment, but then also convict us of, of righteousness, um, that, that we find grace and forgiveness and, and a reputation better than we deserve in Christ, uh, in the person of your Son. So strengthen our minds and our hearts with your grace that we might leave here seeking to do your work, uh, pleasing, pleasing our Father who loved us first. So we ask all this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's, it's interesting as you think about being a, a Christian for any length of time and you, you're trying to, to, to read the scriptures and, and just grow in your personal, private life, there's all kinds of books out there, um, good, solid books telling you how to apply the gospel um, to prayer, to, to better understanding the Bible story, um, all kinds of good books to read, right? It's Ecclesiastes, of the making of many books, there is no end. <laughs> But what's interesting in the church, I mean, I, I don't know how many sermons I've preached and how many times in the last four years I've talked about work in particular. Right? We've come out around it, but to say, um, God, 
Your faith is not meant to be private. Your faith is meant to be lived every moment of every day, including at your workplace. Because right? Monday through Saturday, 95, the 95% of our time when we're not reading the Bible and praying, uh, we're still human. We have people to serve, uh, people we live with. We have jobs to do, bills to pay. And so what is the gospel? What is Jesus being king who was killed, uh, crucified, dead, and buried for our sins and raised on the third day have to do with your your job? How do you manage a business to the glory of God? How do you wait on tables as a Christian? How do you farm? We have farmers here. How do you change diapers? Um, Giving thanks to Jesus. And so there, there is a deep well of wisdom for our work here in, in this passage and, and elsewhere in the Bible. And as I jumped into this, this, is, this needs to be like a four-part series, and I don't have time to do that now. So we'll put that ahead for another day. So we're just getting started, and if, I hope this sparks some good, good conversation after. But the idea is God's divine power in the gospel from Jesus gives us everything, everything we need for life. And if you live, you have to work. And so the gospel has things to say. And even to those times where you can't work because you're weak or sick or you're, you're not, well, COVID, <laughs> and you're not able to go to work. All right, so a good place to start to jump into the text to, to think about work. What's your relationship with your job like? You know, how do you approach your work? For some of us, it, work is just a means to an end. I gotta pay the bills. And there's, it's not a bad thing, right? Paul says you have to work to eat. And if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So that's not a bad thing. Um, for some of us, right, we can, we can relate to people who say work is my life. Um, maybe you can relate to this lady named Erin Callan who was once named the most powerful woman on Wall Street. She says, um, this is her own confession here. She said, I didn't start out with the goal of devoting all of myself to my job. It crept in over time. First, I spent just a half hour on Sunday organizing my email, my calendar, so Monday would be easier, and then a few hours on Sunday, and then eventually all day, and then all my boundaries slipped away until all I had left was work. And then the financial collapse in 2008 happened, and she... When she left her job, she was devastated. And she said, I just couldn't move on. I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. I couldn't separate my job from my identity because what I did was who I was. And if it wasn't for the financial crisis, if I didn't lose that job, I may have never been strong enough to step away. It's pretty wise words there in terms of knowing yourself. We either hate work because we just got something you got to get through to get something else. Uh, I mean, that's one way to do it. And then the flip side is it's my life and it's controlling me and it's a runaway train and I can't get a grips on it. Maybe you know what it's like to to work for, as The Onion describes, that laid-back company that now allows you to work from home after 6 (laughs) p.m. It's the kind of relaxed culture they're striving for, one where you can even work from your living room till two in the morning if you so choose. <laughs> it's not a fun place to be. So that's why we, we need 
to apply this passage. I know I need to apply this passage. It, it invades professional ministry as well. It can take over. So what does Jesus have to say? How does this passage help us? Now that you are under Jesus' authority and he is your Lord, how then shall you work? And so the first point I want to camp out on for a little while is it's just an identity reminder. You are a servant of Christ Jesus if you are a Christian. It's one of the, I think it's probably the most common description for someone in relationship with God from the Old Testament to the New. I'd have to confirm that, but over and over again, every follower of Yahweh, follower of Jesus, is called his servant. And then here in our text, right, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to our Father. And then verse 24, servants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You start to combine those two. I mean, you can... Find it elsewhere you, in, the, in the, the book of Colossians. People who serve the church are called servants. Uh, if you're a Christian, Jesus is Lord. You're his servant. And what you do with your time, your words, your actions, you do so serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I do as well, right? It's not just a professional ministry thing or what you do in the secular world. Everywhere you go, as a Christian, you're a servant. Right? No matter, that's one of the points of the passage, that no matter where you are, no matter what you are doing, no matter how much power or money or influence you have, you serve where God has placed you. Work well in the particular job that God has given you, whether you're in charge or whether you're not. Right? I mean, you notice here, this is important, both Christian servant and Christian master are reminded that you have an identity outside of your work. You serve, you have a master in heaven, you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not what you do. There is something outside of you that motivates your work, but work is not your life. Right? So you just, I don't think this way as often as I probably should. I am a servant. Um, you know, one, one uh, book on ministry calls pastors sheepdogs, right, that serve the shepherd. You do what you're told. So talk about being in your face to being American. <laughs> right, we say, we have rights. God says, you're my servant. It's a different kind of relationship. There's other metaphors, but that, that's what's here in front of us in the text. Which means our work is not just about me. It's not just about you. Right? Because that's the temptation. We live in an American world, and if you want to pick a job, right? We have young people. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do when you grow up. Right? And you hear guys like Steve Jobs, the, the owner of, former CEO of Apple, he says, your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, and the way to do great work is to love what you do. And if you haven't found something that you love to do, keep looking. I heard it put another way. You have a, a square-shaped hole in your heart that's looking for joy and satisfaction from your work. And somewhere out there is the job 
that will fit that hole in your heart and you will find satisfaction. <laughs> Sounds very evangelical. All right. And that's, that's a whole other sermon, but just think about it. Compare that cultural pressure to let work be your master that's looking to, to let your job control you, control your happiness, to what Paul is saying, whatever you do, no matter where you are when Jesus finds you, do it filled with gratitude and do it in Jesus' name. Whether you're washing dishes at home, folding laundry, because you've got to do that every day because you have a big family, you do so as a servant of Jesus. Wherever you go, whatever you do or say, even those words you put out on the internet, right? that's real life too. Do so in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Right? Even if you can't go to work, that's what I love about this everything. Because at some point we're all going to get there of where physically we can't go to work, COVID has shut some things down and it's super disorienting, uh, because we're just made to work, which we're going to talk about in a moment, you can do little things, even the words you use with the people you live with, um, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Done by faith, glorifying God at home. Somewhere in the Gospels, Jesus said, even a, a cup of cold water given to one of these little ones in my name. That's dignified work. Everything you do now as a Christian, you're his servant, which is very helpful. And because you are Jesus' servant, your work matters. There is eternal significance to it. You could be a plumber. You could be a pastor. There are good works that God planned beforehand for you to do with your hands, with your words. You could be a, an engineer, a programmer. You could be a poet, a musician. Right? All that can be done and ought to be done as a Christian for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it in Jesus' name. So, all work is, right? wherever you go, right? we're, we're sent as servants. This is your identity, and it helps to think through what does it mean to do these things in Jesus' name? Um, you have to talk about it. If you're a servant, you represent your Lord and Master wherever you go. Uh, it's an Old Testament idea that, that Paul is fleshing out now and applying to Jesus, that you carry someone else's name. All right, so listen to uh, this familiar passage from Numbers 6, 22 to 25, or 27. All right, it's, the, it's what we call the ironic blessing. It's a benediction we use here all the time. Where the, the priests are told, this is how you shall bless the people of Israel, and this is what you should say to them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Keep is a protection word. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you and give you peace. And then it, right after that it says, so shall the priests, so shall they, put my name, God's name, on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And so in the Old Testament, and here in Colossians, I think, when God wants to bless you, he gives you his name and says, now you work for me, now you represent me, and that's part of the blessing. He's been gracious to you. 
He's been kind to you. He is protecting you. He is, he is serving you <laughs> in the gospel. Right? So now carry his name well wherever you go. And this really has, this will help you understand the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's more than just saying a bad word here and there. You represent the maker of heaven and earth. You now carry Jesus' name, your king, your savior, your Lord, your master. Right. So, you start thinking about that. Everywhere you go, your work ethic, um, the way you do your job is representing Jesus to someone else, to the world, because when you do it in his name. Right. Sometimes it's, you do this with, unconsciously, right? You do something and someone says, I didn't think Christians were allowed to do such things. Enter guilt, because you forgot who you represent. Right. I mean, our, our kids, our non-Christian neighbors are watching and listening, and our work, our words, our deeds are either going to make Jesus look attractive and life-changing or silly and unimportant, and that, that applies in how you do your job. Right. So, that's the first point. I'm, I'm, tr I'm really pushing this because I, this is countercultural to think of ourselves as a servant, and especially in our passage, right? Slaves in the ancient world, it's an honor to be called a servant of Jesus. It's an honor that ought to lift the head of the poorest and weakest, those who do the jobs that go the least noticed. Because what Paul is saying, in Christ's kingdom, there is no insignificant work. Even when you're serving at home for a master who doesn't appreciate you, work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Of course, the flip side, and I think you're feeling it, to be a servant of Jesus puts a burden on our backs, doesn't it? Something so heavy that only humility can carry it, as C.S. Lewis put it. That wherever you go, whatever you do, you represent someone else. Um, right, I, I've worked for an employer who was, I'll just say, at high expectations, right? And, and hard to live up to those. And some of the easiest times to work were when he wasn't looking. That is not true for Christians. Whatever you do, you do so in Jesus' name because you're a servant. All right? But this is put in, in terms of an imperative, a command, so it's telling you to be intentional about it, to think through who you are and live as Jesus calls you, his servant. Now, second point. If you're a servant, we're, we got, I want to reinforce the goodness of work. Uh, because just because it's not our life, uh, just because it may be a means, an end, means to an end, that work is good in the story of the Bible. Right? And so Genesis 1 and 2, I want to read that. Uh, Brandon, uh, if, you could, if you could project that for me, I know it's in the PowerPoint. Um, I've got the text. You can read it and follow along. Right? Genesis 1 and 2 are telling you what does it look like to be ideally human before the fall. And so let me, let me read this, and we'll, we'll make a couple brief points. There's a lot more here than I'm able to say today. But this is, again, this is God's word describing what he intended you to be. You were made with a purpose. 
says, when, uh, <coughs> excuse me, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created <coughs> in the day when the Lord, that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. And then it zooms in. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and, and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And here's the point I want you to focus in on. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. Right. Male and female are part of this. <laughs> so, like I said, there's a lot here. But here's what I want you to see, and what I need to see, that in the garden, before sin, before work was frustrating, <laughs> before tears of futility and pain soaked the ground, before the fall, before Adam blew it, God put man... In, the, in a garden to work and to serve and to protect. Right? In paradise, there is work. Right? That doesn't sound like any paradise that we talk about <laughs> in our day and age, does it? No, after God commissioned humans to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to rule, to subdue, to take care of this world in chapter 1, he puts them in a garden and says, I want you to, to work, to serve. Which means work is not inherently evil. Work is good. It is good to serve. Uh, the Bible honors your work in a way that no other worldview does. Right? I mean, the secular worldview will say your work is your life. Find something you enjoy, get satisfaction out of it because you're here once and then you die. And in the words of Bertrand Russell, at the end of all, all things, everything's going to burn up anyway and everything's going to be insignificant. Right, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, right? So you've got to build your work career on a scaffold of unyielding despair, he says. Now, according to the Bible, you, it be, begins with the story of human beings given a job representing the Lord who made them. God could have done everything for them. Instead, he says, I'm going to partner with you. You are my image bearers, you my representatives, and I put you in the garden to work, and the Hebrew word for work literally means to serve. Right? And the word for keep, it's a word 
to guard or protect. So our jobs have to do with serving and protecting. These are priestly words, and that's... I mean, that's why when you're told you can't work, it's so disorienting, because part of your humanity is you're designed by your creator for a particular purpose, and that is to do a job in service of your maker. Right, so Monday's coming. How many of you feel like work itself is a curse? You hate your job. I mean, Genesis 3 is true. There is frustration. But Genesis 2 is trying to show you there's no honor greater than partnering, uh, than, than being God's servant. It's one of the gifts that comes with being human. Because right at the beginning, what happens? How did God make people? It says he formed them. Right? He's doing work himself. It's like an artist, a potter, as, as the scriptures say. But he's also breathing personally. We, I sent an email about this, right? He blew into their face to give them life. And he gave them the, the ability to do the job they were called to do. He's even gracious at creation. I have a job for you to do. Let me give you the ability to do it. Let me give you life. So, isn't that comforting? Work is good. Right? That, that desire to do a good job at your job is an imita imitation of your God who does good work. God being sovereign, he could have chose to feed everyone to get all the jobs done himself, but instead he commissions you and I to care for a particular corner of the world in service of him. It needs to transform the way you approach your work. I mean, we, we, it's another sermon to talk about futility, for sure, and the, and the thorns and thistles of Genesis 3, which of why work is so hard and frustrating. But work itself is good. It's a gift. Whatever you say or do, your humanity is designed to serve God, creation, and others. Do you believe that? Even the most menial task can be done as good work. Do you believe that? It's point three, right? You're a servant. Work is good. Point three is God honors all kinds of work. If you come back to Colossians chapter three, to be a slave, a house servant, a bond servant, that was a demeaning and vulnerable place to be in the ancient world. We feel that too. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. Right? Are you? But what Paul does in this passage in a, in a couple ways, he dignifies both those who serve as servants and he also dignifies those who are in charge of saying both of you because of who you serve, should serve the, like the one who first served you. So here's what I mean. Servants, obey in everything, fearing the Lord. You're serving the Lord Christ, the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? I mean, what is one of the chief descriptions of the Messiah in the Old Testament? The suffering servant. In Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I delight. And he does all kinds of good work. Isaiah 53, my servant shall act wisely. He's going to do good work. How? By looking absolutely hideous beyond human as he's pierced beyond our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. 
doing the good work of redemption, making many righteous, healing sinners. And so servants, you have been served by Christ. Serve as Jesus served you, giving thanks to the Father. Do so now in Jesus' name. Masters, rule like your master who doesn't show partiality. So if you're in charge of people, um, rule justly and fairly. Seek to think about the welfare of those underneath you uh, in terms of your employees. Right? So do your work the way Jesus does his work. You see the pattern? It's, it's all connected to this image of God stuff. And this is, this is really what I hope you see, is the Bible really does honor every kind of work, from homemaking to the highest tiers of government. Right? Whatever you do, serve and protect in Jesus' name. Do good work. It is good. Right? So just take a moment and think about the kind of work God does. Right? Look, at, look at the reflection. Um, I think it can pop up here on the, on the screen. It says, in Genesis, we see God as a gardener, and in the New Testament, we see him as a carpenter. No task, says Tim Keller, is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of work given by God. Right. Genesis, God is a gardener. Jesus, before he did the good work of ministry, of redemption, part of that work of redemption was just faithful work carp using his hands in a shop doing a blue-collar job. You get to Exodus, you see God's Spirit giving people skills and abilities to make the tabernacle, which involves woodworking, which involves sewing and tapestry, which involves just making things beautiful. You have the Psalms, which God's Spirit moved men in, uh, to, to write good poetry, to, to express their emotions to the God who made them. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 41.3, where you have God doing the work of a, of a bedside nurse. Right? So if you're caring for someone who is ill, uh, weak, and Psalm 41.3 says God restores the sick to health. Um, literally, in the Hebrew, it says God turns beds. Right? That's what you do when you change sheets that are gross because people get sick and there's fluids. Right? You see, uh, in the gospel, the Spirit giving us, doing the good work of giving us the ability to repent, to believe, to be convinced that we're sinners, to believe the gospel. God is at work, as Jesus says. My Father is working and has been working up to this day, and I too am working. And then the Spirit comes, and he is working to make Christ known that you would believe that you need a Savior. And then he recruits you as his servant. <laughs> and so I, I say all that, to show you that where God has placed you, there is a way to do that job uh, that imitates and reflects the goodness of God and the work he has given you to do, even if it feels like menial, mundane, and boring. You can flip burgers at McDonald's to the glory of God. I mean, I've done it. I don't know if I necessarily glorify God, but I flip burgers. You can, you can do these jobs simply because you want to put smiles on people's faces and food in their guts, which is what God does. He feeds people. 
So thank God. He's given you gifts and abilities to work. Last, last point here, and we'll, we'll bring this to a, a close. We're, we're, we're servants. Work is good. Uh, whatever, whatever you are doing is, is honored here. Whatever you do, wherever you go, do so in Jesus' name. Um, there is no work that's beneath us. Look at the text addressed to servants. It says in verse 22, Bond servants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters. And here's how we're supposed to do this work. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance, every reward. <laughs> Paul knows people. He is one. Self-professed chief of sinners. Right? And we know that when you get set up to do a job, it's so easy for the reason to do that job is to make it all about me as a people pleaser or about what other people think of me. Right? I just want you to like me. I want, I want the good job, well done, faithful servant from other people. And, and then I live and eat and, and die by their approval. And there, there's other ways to do that, right? I mean, some of us, you know what it means to be a people pleaser. I've talked to some of you. You're, you're self-professed people pleasers. Um, some of us don't do good work because we're so, con- so desperate for someone to say good job that we're scared of doing a bad job. And we're still living as people pleasers, trying to fear other people rather than the Lord who has already given you a good job in the gospel. Maybe that's you. Right? Servants are called to work heartily, which means that everything they are for the Lord. I mean, how do you work when you know no one is looking? Right? Maybe you don't like your boss, so I'm not going to try too hard. Maybe you disappear for an extensive, unnecessary amount of time uh, online playing Candy Crush or whatever <laughs> distraction you've got. Or maybe it's the flip side. You're just working really, really hard because you need someone to tell you you're good at your job. Working for human approval. So what Paul does, is says, we don't work for that accommodation, that applause. We work for the Lord Jesus. What's our motivation? Well, in the ancient world, here's Tacitus. Just to give you an idea of what it was like to be a slave. Tacitus was a Roman historian, first century, and he writes, here's how we motivate our servants. We've got slaves from every corner of the world with strange practices and languages. It's only by means of terror that we can motivate such scum. Right? Don't want to work for that guy. <laughs> right? There's a religious version of that, right, of i got to work, work, work because God is a slave master like Pharaoh, and if I don't make him happy, it's going to get worse. Now, Paul says, look, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Verse 24, knowing from the Lord you will in the future receive the inheritance as your reward. So, Think about that. Inheritance is sonship language. You are God's son. Meaning what what belongs to your father, all the things that he has worked for, 
that he has given to Jesus, and because your life is now hidden in Christ, in him, the, the reward you're working for, you already have because it's an inheritance. If you're God's son, in Christ, God's child. So the reward, you, that's what Colossians is telling you. You've already got the applause of heaven in Christ. You're given Christ's reputation. Your life is hidden in him. And what's Christ's inheritance? The nations, the new heavens, new earth, a future living and working and serving on earth in a new creation without toil, without being terrified of what other people think, without frustration, without tears, without sorrow. All of that will be unmade as we again receive the benefits of God's work for us. Eternal life, as the Bible calls it. We're not going to, I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I know we're not going to sit in the clouds playing harps. Not all of us are musical. Maybe that'll change in heaven. <laughs> but you're going to have a job to do, to, to explore, to cultivate a particular corner where God puts you, right? And if you're a Christian, you're going to get to see some of the benefits of the hard work you have put here that you're going to see again in heaven, all right? Right, as a pastor, I'm working really, really hard to see you in the new heavens and new earth and others. And I'll get to, to see the, the results of God's labors through me. But that's also true of some of these good deeds you do for others. Um, it's also true in some ways of your, your music, your art, your, your, the labors of your hands will be given back to Jesus as a thank you. And I'm not sure what that looks like, but I know... In Genesis 2, you've got gold that is good. Revelation 21, you've got gold that people have worked for. So there's some kind of continuity to your work that you will get to say, that's what I've been trying to do. <laughs> but my own sin, my own laziness, my own people-pleasing has just ruined it. You're going to get to see the, the labors of your hand empowered by Jesus. But the way to get there is first to deal with Jesus as Lord. You have to be his servant. Right? And so right now what that means, the work you must do is to believe the gospel. To believe that all it takes to get the good job from God is the labor, the good work that Jesus has done by being perfect, obedient. Well, as, this is how John Newton put, put it, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a, a slave into a child and duty into choice. Right? With sonship comes the inheritance. So work as somebody who is already wealthy. Do it in Jesus' name. And you get to do so now saying thank you. What does that look like? It can be real practical for a moment, and then we'll pray. Um, yeah. I can stand up and say, thank you, God, as a pastor. You're redeeming that, those hours that I disappeared in books. Right? I mean, I can hear my grandmother just barking in the other room. Why doesn't that boy get his nose out of a book? <laughs> Go live real life. <laughs> right? but, I, mean, I can see uh, how God equipped me and 
you know, I'm, I'm a recipient of every good gift that came from above. So now I get to put it to, to work in his service of him. Uh, when you go, when you go to work, the labors of your hands, you're going to go make something. You can thank God that you have the skill and, and knowledge and technical know-how to make something nice. If you're, my wife was a recreation major. People need to rest. We need to enjoy, kind of like God did, we turned around and looked at everything and said, it's good. There's a place for the work of recreation to serve people so that they too can rest and be refreshed and renewed to go and do the works that God has equipped them to do. So you say, God, thank you. Help me to glorify you today with the work that I go to do. Help me to glorify you with the songs I write. Um, I mean, you can think of, what's his name, from Chariots of Fire. Right? When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Where he's de- deliberately connecting what he does and doing it in Jesus' name. Right? Go think about that. Servants, you work now as God's child in Christ. You have his inheritance as your reward. May he teach you to be faithful as Christ has been faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of work. And even though this may seem mundane and frustrating, uh, we thank you particularly for the work of redemption that we receive. And I pray we would receive it with open hands, grateful hearts, and that would send us out into the world, not only as witnesses with our words to the truth of the gospel, uh, but also witnesses of, of your goodness with the way we go about our job, that people would see us as we glorify the Father and they would turn and give you glory, Father, for what you're doing in us. So change us, Lord. Continue to shape us into your image even as we go to work this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.